Hello and welcome to the Ashurst Corporate Crime and Investigations podcast series, where we explore a range of aspects of investigations and bring to you some of the insights that we've gained from carrying out investigations for our clients across different sectors. I'm Neil Donovan. I'm a senior associate in Ashurst's global corporate crime and investigations team based in London. And today we're looking at anti-money laundering and compliance, which has been a long-standing focus area for regulators globally and continues to drive enforcement activity. I'm joined today by Adam Jameson and Matt Russell. Adam is a partner in our dispute resolution practice in London and specialises in representing financial institutions and their senior management in regulatory investigations. Matt is a partner and member of the leadership team in our Ashurst Risk Advisory business, specialising in financial crime compliance. Adam, Matt, welcome and thanks for joining. Thanks, Neil, for having me. Hi, Neil. So a great panel for what should be a really interesting discussion. I'm going to kick off by asking Adam, as we near the end of the first quarter of 2023, how seriously should firms be taking AML risk? Well, it's 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 a great question. I think um, I always look at these things from an enforcement perspective and, you know, what I'm seeing on the investigation side. And I do think this is an area where the enforcement risks remain significant, as they have been for a number of years. Um, since uh, October last year, the FCA has published four cases fining firms for anti-money laundering system and controls issues. And we saw two in early January. There was also the highest penalty imposed for any regulatory breach by the FCA last year, just over £100 million in December. And again, that was an AML um, case. So on that side, um, the risks, I think, are high. There's also other cases in the pipeline. We know from the FCA's annual report that they opened 10 financial crime cases in 2021-2022, and they reported they had a total of 47 open cases at the end of 21-22, some of which, of course, we've now seen um, published. So it's it's clear that there's a heavy caseload on the AML side and, and more to come and more cases being opened. Um, and I guess that flows from the fact that it remains a supervisory focus for the FCA. Um, there was the review of AML controls at Challenger Banks, which they published, published last year. Um, the FCA's 22-23 business plan in their three-year strategy to 2025 called out AML as a, as a priority area to tackle financial crime. And it's also clearly been an enforcement priority under the current director of enforcement, Mark Stewart. And uh, I think it's quite notable that he gave a speech in 2021 that was specifically on the importance of purposeful AML controls. And, you know, that's not a speech being delivered by someone at the FCA on the supervisory side. That's the director of enforcement giving that speech, which I think shows where it is on their agenda. And it'll be very interesting to see the approach of the new director of enforcement when Mark Stewart stands down um, this spring, um, including you know whether that individual favours um, regulatory cases, criminal cases or dual track cases where there are AML issues identified at firms. Thanks, Adam. So it's clear a lot of enforcement activity already this year. Matt, what would you add from an advisory perspective? I suppose a couple of things, uh, Neil, sort of building on what um, uh, Adam said. So I think the first thing to sort of reinforce is that a lot of these cases, as Adam highlighted, are from sort of those organisations that perhaps historically, traditionally, weren't necessarily being a focus. 
of the regulator when it came to uh, to AML. So, so Adam mentioned um, the challenger banks, and I think some of those other enforcement notices relate to businesses that perhaps weren't necessarily within that sort of regulatory regulatory focus. And I think from an advisory perspective, what they highlight as well is that um, there are often then different challenges that are, I think, that are presented uh, by those either business um, processes, business models, or the different types of risks that they're going to be um, exposed to. So I think it is making sure that organisations are reflecting on what are my risks, what are my AML risks, and have I got the appropriate controls um, to do that? So I think, again, in some of those enforcement actions that um, Adam highlighted, I think that's where there was a clear, clear gap between expectations in terms of what they thought was appropriate and clearly what the regulator thought was uh, suitable uh, for those organisations. I think, though, the other factor would be some of these cases are, unfortunately, with organisations that have had AML failures in the past. And I think it reinforces the importance of not only responding to those original issues and demonstrating to the regulator that you've got something that you've done something appropriate to address those those gaps that have identified, but also, perhaps more importantly, that you're putting controls in place that ensure that you've got that sustainable control environment so that you're continuing to address and demonstrate and you address the AML risk. Because again, like a lot of financial crime, these are risks that by their nature will be changing, particularly the moment you put up controls to try and prevent, frustrate or detect. So Again, it's this idea of the agility of the organisation to be able to, I think, deal with this particular risk. For me, I think it's highlighted in those cases that, um, that Adam identified and really is the lens through which I think organisations need to think about AML risk in terms of what they do about it. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. That's really interesting. And Adam, um, some of the fines that you've mentioned are really quite significant and we've seen those continue into 2023. How have those actions been triggered and what are the common themes that we're seeing? Yeah, thanks, Neil. I think on the on the sort of the issues and, and themes, you know, there's a number of themes that you can take across, you know, the wide range of AML cases that that we've seen, you know, more recently and in and in recent years. I mean, the AML specific issues, very commonly systems controls in relation to politically exposed persons, PEPs client due diligence, including enhanced due diligence for high-risk customers, um, how um, the firm deals with significant cash operations, for example, money service bureaus, correspondent banking and trade finance operations, AML awareness within the organisation and suspicious activity reporting, and then perhaps finally transaction monitoring. I mean, in terms of themes... I think it's noteworthy that there doesn't have to be any evidence of actual money laundering in in the majority of these cases. It can be just this hypothetical risk. And the focus is very much on the adequacy of the AML framework. The FCA tend to look at culture um, within the organisation, particularly, um, you know, obviously in relation to AML tone from the top. Do people see AML compliance as an important part of their role? You know, how does it feel within the organisation? Is it simply a box ticking exercise? Obviously, training is a part of that. And I, I think Matt's going to come on to, to talk about that um, in due course. I'd be interested in, in, in his views on that. There's also record keeping can be an issue within these investigations. Confirms evidence that they're 
doing the right things and you know complying with their particularly complying with their own policy um standards and then just finally neil on triggers it's obviously case specific but in my experience there's very commonly um a failure to remediate known issues and then a, a an issue with the firm satisfying the fca um in relation to the same that they are dealing with those issues in a in an appropriate um and timely way and this response by the firm to what i would say is a, a red flag and normally you see in these cases there's a clear line in the sand where the fca will say clearly this issue should have been identified and it wasn't or if it was identified it wasn't dealt with in in the right way um and that very often can be the trigger and it might be an fca supervisory visit or a deep dive or a thematic review it could be a section 166 skill person review it could be a red internal audit report it could be a whistleblower or it could be an issue that's been self-reported by the firm um there's 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 a number of different ways these cases happening but very often it's this response to red flags that yeah that's a really interesting observation adam that money laundering risk does not necessarily need to crystallize in order for an enforcement outcome to follow um, and the focus very much being on the compliance program. Um, so I'd like to ask Matt, what are the key features of an AML compliance program that the FCA expects firms to have in place? You know, I suppose on one level, those sort of key requirements are elements that haven't really changed over the last 15 years. But I think as Adam, I think quite rightly highlighted, it's actually the, it's the quality of those controls and it's actually what organizations are doing in relation to each of those pillars that I think is important. So for me, obviously the starting point and, and my colleagues would um, uh, would sort of hopefully reinforce this would be it's, it's around the risk assessment. And, and again, for me, that's the piece that often organizations are failing to get right and the FCA and others internationally have perhaps questioned the quality um, of the risk assessment. But equally, it shouldn't just be a standalone document that is there that can be pulled off the shelf to explain to the regulator what is being done. And, and dare I say it, in some organisations, taking a year to pull together and you've got to start the exercise of, of refreshing it again. For me, that risk assessment is the key document and the key tool that not only helps with that dialogue with the regulator and other third parties, um, but also should be the tool that then guides the nature of all of those downstream activities, whether it's the due diligence controls like onboarding and screening or the ongoing monitoring, such as sort of transaction monitoring systems, automated or manual, as Adam said, the training, and then also helping guide and prioritise what sort of remediation actions uh, need to be in place. So, so getting that risk assessment right um, is critical. I think that second pillar, though, is around the on, that onboarding process in terms of not, not only what clients are you taking on, but also potentially what clients are you then, after, during the course of the relationship, do you feel like you're, you're not willing to, to, to continue the relationship because some of, some of the concerns that you have based on the due diligence that you've, that you've done? And, and, and I think what's critical is Ultimately, that is a decision-making process. Yes, there's a, there's a number of activities that need to be done increasingly to satisfy explicit regulatory requirements, but it is due, it is due diligence 
with a view that then the organization has an informed decision around whether they either take on or maintain that relationship. And I, again, the quality of that decision-making and sort of reinforcing what Adam's saying, that how that, that decision-making is documented, the, the, the nature of the rationale. I think all of those are the things that perhaps organizations aren't necessarily um, taken into, into consideration. And then that third pillar is, is the ongoing monitoring. And, and again, really due diligence is not just that onboarding, but it's that ongoing monitoring as well, both in terms of is that client or that customer doing what we expect? And, and more, more particularly, what should we expect? And I think what's interesting for me in a lot of those enforcement actions is that in many respects, a lot of those organizations potentially had a different relationship with those clients or customers, which means that some of them, you would have expected them to have a full banking relationship. So the expectation would be that actually they should and could have identified what's unusual because in theory, they that bank had a line of sight in terms of the ongoing activities. But, but then in other circumstances, uh, the, the, the institution may not have the opportunity to see all of the aspects of that customer transactional activity. <clears throat> so, so what information do they need in order to be able to identify that something is unusual uh, and, and out of the ordinary? without necessarily capturing lots of information that, dare I say it, potentially opens them up to other risks, particularly around data protection or, or otherwise. So I think it's an int- a really challenging balancing act that organizations need to make around that ongoing monitoring, not just, in, not just in terms of the process, but also some very important decisions around how much data that they need to capture, gather and maintain in order to do that effectively. And then the fifth, the, the, sorry, the fourth pillar uh, that I think the, the regulator is looking at is training. And, and again, unfortunately, organizations, when they think about training, they think oh, as long as we demonstrate that everyone's done their annual training, then that's, that's sufficient. When actually what I think have been called out in some of, those, some of the cases over the last 12 months is that certain roles need certain types of training that's potentially going to be more intense than others. And again, coming back to what I said about the risk assessment, the regulator is looking to ex- for an expectation that what's called out in that risk assessment and also other external uh, sources of information around risk is then informing the training, particularly of those that perhaps are at a high, should have heightened awareness around some of the, the risks that they may be coming into contact with. So I think the expectations around the quality the coverage and just the nature of that training, I think the bar has been raised in terms of what the regulator is looking for in light of those those cases. And then again, I come back to that fifth pillar in terms of remediation uh, that um, Adam uh, described. And again, I think particularly for those organisations where these aren't, this is not the first time that they've been fined, I think there are some legitimate questions to be asked around the, the quality of their remediation programmes. And for me, I think one of the things from an advisory perspective to to reflect on is particularly where you've identified significant gaps in the organization's processes and you're looking to remediate them. Well, they may be the strategic aims that may take one, two, sometimes three years, particularly if technology is involved. But what are the tactical mitigants that the organization needs to put in place that may not be as good as those strategic uh, solutions that may be more manual, but that need to ultimately 
be put in place for the organisation to demonstrate that not only have we identified the gaps, not only have we got a plan, but we've also got some of those tactical um, activities that help us manage the risk in the meantime while we're waiting for that strategic solution to be put into place. And I think, again, if we reflect on some of those organisations that have fallen foul of the regulator around AML, I think you're seeing some of those weaknesses. Great. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, that, that's a really, really fascinating overview of um, the extent and the scale and scope of an effective AML compliance programme. So we've spoken a lot about what firms can expect from the FCA and what they should be doing in practice. Adam, if you had to identify one key takeaway for our clients, what would it be? I think it's this is both for firms and senior managers who might have accountability in this area. It's to look out for those red flags and take action where you see them. I mean, ideally, um, if there's, for example, going to be a, a regulatory visit or a, a review um, of the controls, then try and get ahead of it. And to the extent you can make any enhancements before that that review happens because often there's the opportunity to do that or at least identify where your gaps are and have a plan in place that you can you can present to say look we're aware of this and this is what we're doing about it rather than let um the fca or you know external party discover um that issue i guess if you're in a situation where issues have been identified um you know through by, by the fca or or uh, an external third party then it's a case of taking advice, getting a remediation plan in place, including adding additional resource. And resources are, is an issue that we see very often in, in enforcement investigations. Um, obviously, a lack of resource can lead to delays, backlogs in remediation. You've obviously got to deal with your BAU at the same time, too, and it might require external support and additional budget. You need clear escalation of these issues to senior management and the board you need governance around the remediation, ownership um, and oversight of delivery and also where necessary, positive regulatory engagement on the issues. You know, early, proactive, build confidence um, between the firm and the FCA that the firm is is dealing with the issues appropriately. So that would be uh, my takeaway. Great. Thank you, Adam. And Matt, what would be your takeaway for clients? I think I'd build on um, what um, what Adam's just outlined and and probably go back to what I was saying around the importance of the risk assessment because if this is a risk-based approach and I think to be successful it has to be a risk-based approach I think both organizations and the regulators need to acknowledge that things will go wrong and I think that the, the way in which an organization responds that I think um, Adam was outlining um, is critical. And again, that's why I think the risk assessment itself is so important, because it either explains where the organisation was focusing it, was focusing its efforts and its resources, and, and hopefully supported by a well-reasoned and evidence-based rationale as to why that was appropriate for that business at that time in the context of the risks that they understood. And then if something else happens, perhaps not necessarily where they were focused on, then there's a legitimate question to say as to whether that now means that they need to recalibrate those controls to be able to address that risk, or it might have, might just be a one-off that means that actually they were still justified in pointing the resources in a particular direction. But then if that breach or that failure happens where 
the organization had focused its resources, then particularly as the sort of MLRO who's responsible for compliance <clears throat> with the regulations, they should be able to demonstrate what they've done, which you would hope is proportionate and appropriate in the circumstances. And that, again, it may be, hopefully, the activity of a either customer or sometimes a member of the business uh, or the organization that really you couldn't predict, but all reasonable efforts had been made. But I think to do that effectively, you need to be able to demonstrate through the risk assessment where you understood the risk to be, what you've done, and more, more particularly, picking up Adam's point, what you have done on an ongoing basis to get comfortable that the organization is then complying with those controls that you've put in place. So this, this shouldn't be a zero failure regime, but I think in order to be in a robust position when it does go wrong, because by definition, risk-based approach, it is more likely to go wrong, that you're in a very strong position to be able to have that dialogue with the regulator, which I think is was Adam's last point, which I absolutely agree with. It's making sure that you've got that transparency, that openness, but you've also got really good data that you're able to have that robust conversation with them. So for me, Neil, unfortunately, it comes back to the risk assessment. That's, that's great advice, Matt. I think we can say with certainty that monitoring of AML risk should remain firmly at the top of legal and compliance agendas as we move through 2023. And I'm sure this is a topic that we'll revisit in future podcasts as enforcement activity continues and the legislative landscape evolves. Thank you very much to Adam and Matt for joining today. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with us or have questions, then you'll find our details on the Ashurst website. And if you'd like to learn more, then look out for the next podcast in this series. If you don't want to miss future episodes, do subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, leave us a review or a rating and let us know if there are any topics that you'd like us to cover. Until then, thank you very much for listening.